The Bible passage for this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I've learned that the Pew Bibles are not all on the same page. It's probably somewhere in the 1700s if you want to start there and look around. Um, Otherwise, Philippians uh, comes after Ephesians. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Good morning, High Point. For those of you who are visiting for the first time, I point, my name is Manohar James, and I serve as one of the ministers here. And uh, I always have something to thank you before I preach. But today, I want to thank you for tolerating my accent <laughs> for a long time when I come here and preach. And some of you really struggle to understand, and I wanted to guarantee that you're not alone. I am part of that. I don't even understand what I speak sometimes. <laughs> well, we are looking at uh, the book of Philippians and uh, drawing lessons for our life. And uh, in the last few weeks, we looked at chapter one. And today, we will start looking at chapter two, beginning from verse one through 11, which Sharon read just now. And let's look at verse 1 to 5. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Very tough. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Verse 5, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let me repeat that. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Jesus. Now, Paul is talking about maintaining genuine relationships within the body of Christ. 
because during his arrest and trial, you know what happened? Many of his fellow believers tried to amplify, increase the persecution that he was going through. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 18, that he rejoices in the advancement of the gospel, whether it was proclaimed out of goodwill or out of envy or selfishness. But now, when he comes to chapter 2, he tells to them that you will not make my joy complete until you do it right. He wants to tell them how important it is for us as Christians to maintain purity in what we do and do selfless service to one another. Don't you experience frustration when dealing with people? Do you? Anybody don't? It's not because you are having communication skills, not because you're not competent enough in your culture, but because we operate in flesh. That's why these kind of relational crises happen. We often have to battle those crises and try to swim towards the likeness of Jesus. So Paul is trying to address in this passage two dangerous areas of life, selfishness and vain conceit, selfish ambition. Because of selfish ambitions and arrogance, people idolize themselves to the extent of undermining God's grace and even despising people around them. Look at what happened to the people of Israel who disobeyed God and were blinded by their selfishness and vain glory not to see the greatness of God, not to see the work of God in their own lives. Look at Jonah, who did not want to extend the salvation to the people of Nineveh because he wants to keep the salvation within his community limits. He doesn't want that to let it go out for the sake of the others. He wants to hold it for himself. Think about what happened to rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. Because of his selfish lifestyle, he does not want to follow Jesus. Well, we all have been taught that the worldly success depends on selfish ambitions. We all were raised to grow with ambition of some kind so that we'll be successful in the world, whether it is in educational, whether it is in financial matters, or whether it is in the status matters or politics. But we are all given that kind of selfish attitude from the time we are put into the school to be best in everything. And we are not telling them to do the best, but we are telling be the best, including me. If the worldly success depends on selfish ambitions, we think that that is the way spiritual world also works, but it does not. 
our spiritual victory does not depend on our selfish ambition. That's what the fellow believers of Paul were trying to do when he was arrested. They were trying to do their best for the sake of the gospel, but they were actually hurting the kingdom of God in one way or the other because people are watching their attitude and then there are dissensions within the church. If we are not watchful of those kinds of traits in us, we open doors for Satan to come and mess up our lives. Sometimes Satan will come and make his missionaries. Paul is saying that true Christians should be free from selfishness, envy, and rivalry in the practice of Christian values. False motives are not okay, even if our actions help advance Christ's kingdom. Let me repeat that. False motives are not okay even if our actions help advance Christ's kingdom. God genuinely cares about what is inside of us than what we produce outside, hypocritically. Because God always looks inside of us. It's not about how much we do for the Lord, but how we do it. Where our heart is in all that we do for Him. If our practice of love, comfort, encouragement, sympathy, affection, even generosity do not reflect the nature of Jesus, what happens? Those practices will remain as rituals of Christian humanism, which is not too different from secular humanism everybody else are doing in the world, and we are not different. Why are we doing so many good works while everybody else in the world are doing the same thing? We are doing because we are compelled by the Spirit of God. Therefore, we are called not to involve in the operation of the flesh. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20 and 25, that the works of the flesh are selfishness, envy, strife. And James tells in chapter 3, verse 16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. That is where it comes. They are impediments to our spiritual growth. We are called to end the works of the flesh in our Christian walks of life, resisting and throwing off such easily entailing sins that hinder our relationship with God and our relationship with fellow brothers and sisters. You know, sometimes it is because of us that the God's glory is not visible to us. It is not God's glory itself. So how can we overcome the flesh in us? Because you and your Lord knows, not even your spouse knows your heart and how you do things. I battle with this all the time. So Paul offers some solutions for us. He's saying, trade your mind with the mind of Jesus Christ. 
He's saying, trade your mind with the mind of Jesus. And he goes on in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we hear this thousand times over, but still it's hard for us to change because we are in human being. And we need to develop the mind of Christ in us. But we often look for alternate ways to develop better attitudes like transcendental meditation, yoga, and then you have all sorts of therapies to develop your attitude. But Paul says, just come on. You need to come to trade your mind with Jesus. You don't have to work out on your own emotions at all because the, the Lord will lead you into the right ways. If we try to do anything in our own flesh, as Paul says in Romans chapter, chapter 8, verse 6 through 8, the mind governed by the flesh is death. That means we are heading towards death. They all look great. They all look great initially, even in the process, but the end is death. Anything you do, all the therapies, all the solutions the world offers to you will end up in death unless you turn to the Lord. That's why he says in Romans chapter 8, the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. But today, we are not led by the Spirit of God. In my last sermon a week ago, I was telling how we're supposed to be navigated by the Spirit in our day-to-day -day life so that we will not be afraid of speaking the truth in love and in boldness. So now, it's easy to say, come on, trade your mind with the mind of Jesus, but it is hard to practice, don't we? Right? So I have some practical steps for us. All right? Okay, let's move on. So filter your thoughts, interactions, and actions through the notion of WWJD. What is that? Some of you know that, but I don't know whether you practice that. In 1889, Reverend Charles Sheldon was invited as a pastor at the Central Congregational Church in Kansas. When he took over the church, he really wanted the church to grow, like every pastor dreams, right? So he tried his own ways that the church would grow, but on the contrary, his attendance went down during Sunday services. So he didn't know what to do, and then he went back to the Bible and began to look at, what am I doing wrong? And then he looked at, and he thought, okay, why don't I follow Jesus' style rather than the style of the churches? that are in my area. So he started following Jesus and began to preach the same. And then he was telling to the church, con church members, he said, we need to follow in the steps of Jesus. Let's think of what would Jesus do in our actions, in our thoughts, and in our interactions. And then let us see how we will get transformed how we will how, how we will transform the communities around us and then what happened within one year of time he church instead of going down because he was teaching the truth directly and the church was doubled and the community was transformed uh, you know after seeing some of these transformation there was an editor of a newspaper called topeka daily capital he went to 
Pastor Sheldon and he asked Pastor Sheldon, would you please come over to my newspaper and take over the editing work for a week? I want to see how this business can be operated in the way you are operating your church. And then Sheldon agreed to that. So Sheldon went there and he began to edit the newspaper. On the third day, the readers began to find something unusual in the newspaper. Instead of the usual stories, they began to read what the Lord is doing around the world. And people were amazed at how God is changing the lives of the people within this nation, around the world. And guess what happened within a few weeks' time, the subscription of the newspaper was doubled. So now, if that worked for a newspaper business, you can apply WWJD in your own business, in your office. Don't be afraid of the government policies. I mean government policies regarding the gospel. Sorry, Senator. <laughs> we need to really move on this practical step of seeing. I actually tried several times and then I was, um, you know, I was finding it difficult because sometimes we think we can't apply. I began to apply this around four years ago, even long before I found this book in his steps. When I I'm frustrated with the person, I will wait and just think what Jesus would have done. How would Jesus deal with that person in that frustration? Immediately my response to them in email or my response to them in text message would change. But sometimes, you know, there is an auto-correction by Siri, you can't avoid that. <laughs> One day a woman said, I am really in trouble. Immediately I said, can I pray with you right now? But the Siri said, can I play with you right now? <laughs> so, I mean, it's okay if the technology messes up, but I want you to be right in your heart to practice these principles, like filtering your thoughts, your actions, interactions, through WWJD notion so that you will be transformed slowly, may not be, you know, all over it, uh, you know, overnight. In a day or in a week, in a month, probably it will take, you know, a month for some and maybe a year for some, but I want you to try that out. And second, seek God's glory in your social relationships. This is something very, very important. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Even Peter said the similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. So what it means to glorify God? We always think, to glorify God means just to be thankful for everything in every situation. That is, of course, true. But there is more to that. We always think how, you know, Moses glorified God, how Paul glorified God, how Peter glorified God, how people of the first century church glorified God through their mission. But there is more to that. In John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus said, I brought you glory here on earth, 
by completing the work you gave me to do. Look at that. We don't see much about how Jesus worshiped in the temple, like raising hands or you know, jumping up and down or telling everybody praise God. He, I don't know. I don't see any of his worshiping attributes or actions in the synagogue or temple. I don't see much there. But all I see that he often glorified God, not in the temple, not in the synagogue, but outside in the world in every work that he has done. So to glorify God in this context means making invisible qualities of God visible to the world. In fact, this mission was given to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is supposed to shine the light and their light so that everybody not just see Israel, but see the works of the Lord. But they were shining only among themselves, and they don't want to let that light go outside. But when Jesus came, he said, I'm the light of the world, not the light of Israel, not the light of a community, not the light of particular Jews or sects within the Judaism. So what did he do in his personal time, in his public time, in pain and in suffering, he began to show the divine attributes of God to the world by submitting himself to the Father. So that God could exalt him about every name so that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess at his name today we we do not seek god's glory in our daily thoughts words decisions transactions and actions it's actually an antidote to our self-focused self-centered and self-glorified life just try to think of that, how you can glorify God. That means not just praise God, you know, hallelujah, glory. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm saying how you could make the divine attributes of God visible, the invisible attributes of God visible to the people. That is how you shine the light so that God can be glorified in that. The more you possess the mind of Christ, the more you will make God's character visible. I remember a lady in Kentucky, and she was saying that she always had this mind of Christ whenever, wherever she goes, whether she goes to a shopping mall, whether she goes to Walmart for groceries, and she said, I always come out joyfully because I carry the mind of God, and I try to witness and try to show the attributes of God through my life and talk. And then she said one day, I came back home a little sad, and I didn't know why. Then I discovered that I need to go back to find out what was the real problem. So she went back to the shop another day. That's, you know, that's, that naturally comes to ladies, I think. But she went there, and then she, you know, we again did whatever shopping. Maybe she, not, she doesn't spend money, but she just, you know, window shops and things like that and comes back. Um, but again, she said she was sad. It happened several times. And she was wondering whether she was greedy in her heart, whether she's overspending God's resources, whether she was not giving 
to missions. That was her thought. So she doesn't know why she was sad, but she was wondering. So one day she discovered that it was because whenever she stands in the line at the checkout, it was the magazines that she was often looking at. That's where she switches her mind. She wants to be looking much younger than she usually looked. Because, you know, some of those things you never wanted until somebody introduced forcefully to you. That's what these magazines are placed at the, at the counter. You know, sometimes I randomly look and I pick up, not magazines anyway, but, you know, at least some other stuff which I never intended to buy. So that means you are trapped at the exit place. You're almost ready, you are good to go, but at the exit place you're trapped with some kind of temptation you're not able to escape. Now you switch your mind from the mind of Christ to the mind of the world and then come back sad home. That's what happened to this woman. So how do we switch that mind? And here Paul tells that we should emulate Christ's incarnational life. In this passage, he's actually bringing Christ's incarnational process to help us to be humble enough and move away from these attributes of the flesh, selfishness, and attributes of the flesh, vain glory, arrogance, pride, because of which even Lucifer could not get along with God. And he's telling, you need to emulate Christ's incarnational life in order to have the mind of Christ so that you don't have to work on your humility. You don't have to work on therapies. You don't have to work on your own alternative methods to, to, to train yourself or your body, your mind and soul. And he stresses in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, that we should be mortal in the mortal of Jesus Christ in our relationships. So he defines humility by showing how Jesus had abandoned his sovereignty in heaven and how he had accepted servanthood, how he associated with sinners and how he adapted his selfless posture for the sake of dwelling among sinful people to reconcile them to God. Means that is what he did. So humility comes out of that. Let's look at each one of them. He abandoned the privilege and deserving mentality. That's what we need to do. Humility comes from abandoning the privilege and deserving mentality. How many times you have heard, I deserve this. He deserves that. Right? Paul says this one, through Though Jesus was God, that's what he says, verse 5, though Jesus was God, he did not demand or cling to his rights as God. I'm reading from Living Translation. He did not demand or cling to his rights as God. This is so powerful. When I was reading this, literally, like my heart was breaking. For me, he has to do this much. He could have simply commanded from heaven, let all these people be saved, let this uh, Satan be chained. He did not do that. He wants to set an example before us. So he sent his son Jesus Christ, who had to go through these, these painful things in his life. He did not even 
equal himself with God, though he himself is God. But verse 7, Paul says, he laid aside his mighty power and glory, becoming like man. In other translation, it says, he emptied. He emptied means he poured out until all is gone. Where do we match in this process? In John chapter 6, we read that he gave up. He gave up the independent exercise of his own will for the sake of saving you and me. How many of us differ so much in our thought life and even when we think of Jesus and we try to justify our actions even over what Jesus says to us. You know, each one of us are born with privilege or acquired some sort of privilege. Instead of making those privileges bridges between us, we make them as walls between us. Let me repeat that. Instead of making the bridges that, instead of making the privilege that God has given us as a bridge between us, we make them as walls, whether they're invisible or visible, and try to affect everybody else. And we think that we are kind of, you know, being private and being individual, but you have a ripple effect on your neighbor, ripple effect on your family. You have a ripple effect on your own church. When I hear people say, I haven't, speak, I haven't spoken to my father in years because he did not do something I deserve. It breaks my heart. When people say, I haven't spoken to my mom in several years because you know, she didn't raise me in the way I'm supposed to be raised. What kind of deserving we often talk about today that has become a buzzword. I deserve this. What do you deserve? We are all sinners. We deserve nothing unless Christ had come and, you know, sacrificed on that piece of wood. We have nothing. We are all lost. We were in darkness. And then the Bible says we ourselves were darkness, not in darkness, were darkness. And then we receive this light because of the grace of God. Some of us are blessed to be born in a privileged country with a privileged skin or privileged language, privileged uh, economy and all of that. But you just think that it all has come on your head as a, a boon from God. But I tell you, my friend, that all will disappear by a flood or an earthquake at any moment of time. We will take a long time to recover that. The riches that we enjoy, even the very privilege of sitting in this room is by the grace of God. You have done nothing, absolutely done nothing. I haven't done anything to come to, you know, speak from here. I used to dream, will I, will I ever be able to see an aeroplane close by when I see an aeroplane flying high? I just used to look at as a child, will I ever be able to see the aeroplane close by? And it was because of that privilege that God bestowed on me 
sky is the limit where I fly every time. The moment I forget that privilege that God has given, and I try to cling on to that privilege for some reason, not letting it go, that is the end of my life. That is the end of my honor that God has bestowed on me through Jesus Christ. And Paul says, practice servanthood. That's what we have to do. Verse 7, he says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. That means in his incarnation, Jesus accepted slave's place. You are all familiar with slaves, right? I actually visited uh, a slave museum in uh, Ohio. Oh, how horrible is that? And now, seeing those pictures, you feel so angry at some of those people who made them slaves. But now, Jesus has become a slave for you and me. It's a voluntary choice that he made for you and me. And even in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, we read that the foxes have holes, the birds have the nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Look at this homeless servant trying to reach you and me who are sitting in kind of human glory, do not want to come down, but he comes down and he wants to have lunch with you, dinner with you, and he wants to hug on you and love you and even pour his life until he died on the cross of Calvary. He did not masquerade as a servant, but he showed his servant attitudes even by going down to the feet of disciples and washing their feet, telling them, do this after my model, how I have shown to you. I have set an example so that you will do as I have done unto you. If Paul could follow Jesus to the point of becoming a servant, that's what he says, 1 Corinthians 9, 19. He says, I have made myself a slave to everyone. That's the Paul's words. He made a servant himself to others to win as many as possible. And associate with people without prejudice. Jesus associated with sinful people, sinful people, the poor, the needy. And he was not just friendly with them. He was a friend of them. Not like us who are always friendly. Hi, how are you? And you don't even listen to their answer. You know, when I first came to the US, and somebody said, how are you? I said, well, what a wonderful man. I wanted to answer, and he was almost <laughs> Jesus was a friend of the sinners. He sat with them, he ate with them, and he cared for the relationships of everybody, whether poor, marginalized. He went in search of a demon-possessed man in the graveyard, and he wants to set him free. Go in search of the neglected people. That was the very, very mission of Jesus. 
in search of those who are stinking, in search of those who are suffering, because that is where you can show the love of Jesus and you can embody the very nature of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, Paul says, To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. What a statement. What a testimony. You know, recently I went to India, and I was talking to the pastors. They all came to see me. And I was telling them, can you prepare for your funeral so that people don't have to lie? and you die. And they were thinking, what kind of introductory words? <laughs> you have to keep your destiny in your eyes when you think of doing something for the Lord. And finally, live a sacrificial life. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is so interesting. Like living sacrifice means two meanings. One is you sacrifice being uh, you know, alive. But on the other side, it indicates living sacrifices sometimes get off the altar. You know, because you can't hold the living one, right? How many times we fall off the altar? Like, you know, I don't want to stay there. No, 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 I don't want to suffer anymore for the Lord. You just get off the altar, you know, you fall off the altar, and you try to escape the altar, come back, and you are the living sacrifice. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus laid down his life for his friends, who are you and me. You know Graham Staines, some of you know probably. He left Australia in 1996 to go to one of the poorest of poor areas in the state of Orissa in India and dedicated his 34 years of life caring for lepers, leprosy patients who were abandoned by their relatives and outcast by society. And he, when, you know, when people don't want to come even close to those lepers, he went and hugged them and cleaned their wounds. He embodied the love of Jesus to the point of becoming a servant and to the point of being a living sacrifice to those people. He cleansed their wounds and healed hundreds and hundreds of them until 1993, January 23rd, when he and his two sons, 10-year-old and 7-year-old, after teaching in a jungle camp, they didn't have any place to go and sleep, no hotels around. So they slept in their own wagon 
And then at around 4.30, there was a big bang on the glass. Glass was broken. Immediately, one of the children shouted, Daddy! Son, calm. There is a danger, but it is not danger enough. If we fail to meet your mom, but we can meet God on the other side. And there was another bang on the other window. There was a mob attacking them everywhere. They couldn't escape. Around 4.30, they set their wagon on fire with three of them inside. It made national headlines during that time. I was in seminary. And three years prior to that incident, I was beaten up in another state and left for dead. Gladys Staines, she was bugged by the media and her friends and well-wishers with the questions, how would you seek justice from the government of India? Would you demand the death of these people who have done such a gruesome action against your family? And this is what she said. It is far from my mind to punish the, the persons who were responsible. It's far from my mind. We have forgiven them. And when she said we have, she's referring to her 13-year-old daughter who said, Mom, let's forgive. And then she, she added, it's my desire and hope that they repent and be reformed. Your living sacrifice is not complete until you see somewhere you identify with Jesus in his suffering, even if that is death. Psalmist prayed in Psalms 119, verse 36, turn my heart towards your statutes and not toward selfish gain. When did you pray that prayer? Lord, turn my heart. Turn my heart towards you and your word and your kingdom, not toward selfish gain. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you so much for teaching us through Paul that we need to abandon the works of the flesh so that we can be dear to your kingdom. We could be called your friends and we could associate with our own neighbors in the body of Christ. God, lead us into the truth, even to have an attitude of praying and asking you daily to turn our hearts away from the selfish gains of the world, but to gain the eternity. As the word says, what? Blessing it is to gain the whole world and lose one's own soul. God, help us to just feel that in everyday life so that we will just, you know, reach our neighbor and connect with our friends through the notion of WWJD so that we will experience the mind of Christ in us. Lord, hear our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.